Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this evening. We thank you for the beautiful, cool weather. We thank you for the opportunity to set aside all the things that have preoccupied us during the day and to focus in on you during this time. Lord, we thank you for this book and for the uh, insights that it contains that are rooted in your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us tonight as we explore these things to be conformed more and more to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, I'm delighted to see y'all here tonight, and we are going to start with a little music clip. I'm always optimistic that someone out there will actually know what it is. I just have to say, I still can't quite believe that no one got We Won't Be Fooled Again. But, you know, it's all right. This might be your chance to redeem yourself. Uh, we'll see. This is a little more current than that one was. So here we go. I love that song is that it is 
deeply rooted in a lot of scripture. So one of the things it says, in these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. Is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But then the chorus is, awake my soul, awake my soul, awake my soul, you were made to meet your maker. Now that is a profoundly biblical answer. And what I really wanted to do, when I went to the Barbie movie, at the end of the Barbie movie, where Billie Eilish is wailing about what was I made for, I wanted to hit the play button for Mumford and Son to come back with, you were made to meet your maker, but I didn't do that. So uh, let's say our scripture verse together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So welcome again, if you are new in person or you are new out in podcast land, uh, we continue to get people from all kinds of places. I got a lovely email from a guy in Buenos Aires this week that has been listening. It just is mind boggling what the internet does. But for those of you who are out there uh, who are new, just a word about how to approach this class. You can be on the beach where you do virtually nothing. You may ask other people to bring you drinks while you sleep. Uh, whatever it is, that's fine, if that's all you wanna do. Or you can snorkel, get interested in the parts that you're interested in, and ignore the rest. Or you can scuba dive. I got another email from a wonderful lady up in Boston who signed herself at the end, SSD, and then a little asterisk, serious scuba diver. And I was like, this is great. Um, but if you are not on the class email list, please, if you're here in person, sign up for it. Uh, if you are uh, out listening to the podcast somewhere, um, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston in the United States, and that will get you to our church website. And then you can uh, send me a note and I'll get you added to the list. So. Uh, just a couple of announcements before we move on. Uh, one that you heard if you were in church is that this is our last class until January 24th. And I know that seems like a really long time, but there's a good reason for it. Um, first, there's Christmas, uh, but then immediately after Christmas when we come back, our Mere Anglicanism Conference, which is a major undertaking, as you all know, uh, actually is a whole week earlier this year, so it begins January 18th, and the speakers will arrive January 17th. So we are going to uh, be all hands on deck, focused on that. But the week after the conference, we will come back with class, and this is actually sort of a good point to break, because the narrative is about to shift dramatically. And because of that, uh, I made a little decision that we were not going to move on to the next chapter tonight, but instead we are going to do a deeper dive into three things that I hope you will enjoy. I thoroughly enjoyed them. 
Um, so I'm hoping that you will too. And those three things have to do with the season in which we find ourselves. So the first thing that we're gonna talk through is why The Last Battle is such a great book to read, which that would be true just with that part. It is such a great book to read, but it's such a great book to read in Advent, particularly. And so we're gonna highlight a little bit of that. Y'all have probably connected the dots about that already, but I think highlighting that will be helpful. And then we are going to do uh, a little uh, excursion into Athanasius and on the incarnation, which uh, I keep plugging that book and I don't know uh, if I've had too much success, but I know that there are several people here who read that book because we kept plugging it. And it is absolutely wonderful and it's short. So keep that in mind. And then last but not least, we have a special treat which is a piece that C.S. Lewis wrote in 1944 called A Christmas Sermon for Pagans that no one knew about. No one knew that it existed. And it was only discovered a couple of years ago in an archive in Edinburgh by a researcher who had the brilliant idea when she heard that the Strand Magazine, which is a very popular magazine in England, um, had only recently been indexed. And so she got hold of the index just to see if maybe perchance Lewis had written something and she found this glorious Christmas sermon for pagans with these incredible drawings by one of the most famous cartoonists of the 1940s in England. And so um, this is a very little known piece. So when you go to your Christmas cocktail parties, you know, you can say, oh, have you read Lewis's Christmas Sermon for Pagans? And no one will have read it and you can feel very superior. So uh, with that, uh, again, just some of the reasons we're studying The Last Battle besides the fact that it's great for Advent is it is a work of genius operating on multiple levels. It's this great capstone that sums up all of the Narnia children's stories. It is also a profound reflection on the sin of Eden, the means of grace, and the glory of heaven. And lastly, it is also a parable about following Jesus in 21st century America that is peculiarly applicable because of Lewis's emphasis on the concepts of word and of truth. So, uh, the last battle is Advent reading, and this is adapted from a Catholic source, Jennifer Gregory Miller. And part of what she says is that the purpose of Advent, which if you've been around St. Philip's during the past several weeks, you've heard this several times, is that we are focusing on the coming of Christ and the incarnation when he was born in Bethlehem, but also preparing our hearts for the second coming. And the readings that we get in the lectionary and uh, the way the collects are in the liturgy are very focused on the second coming. And this uh, is all about the end times when God will be all in all. And there are fancy words for this, the parousia, the eschaton, and all of that. You can try that at your cocktail party too. Um, and that'll probably clear the room so you'll have the bar to yourself. Uh, but 
the story in the last battle about moving toward the end of Narnia is a very interesting way of looking toward the second coming. Because what happens is that you can enter into the emotions of these characters, you can walk with them during these end times. And it's interesting, and I don't think this is an accident at all, that so much of the book echoes the gospel passages that are assigned by the lectionary during Advent. So just to remember, the last battle starts off with this animal posing as Aslan, this ape who says, I'm not an ape, I'm a man, I insist that you call me a man. Um, but he is, if you will, the anti-Aslan in the same way that the scriptures talk about the Antichrist. He has set himself up as the Antichrist. And the characters discover there's this anti-Aslan and that their whole world is being taken over by this enemy. And they realize that this is a dark and ominous time. And there's this beautiful section, which we read before. Suddenly the king leaned hard on his friend's neck and bowed his head. Jewel, he said, what lies before us? Horrible thoughts arise in my heart. If we had died before today, we should have been happy. Yes, said Jewel, we have lived too long. The worst thing in the world has come upon us. And then the little wooden wood animals that were so beautiful in the way they come to minister to Tyrion. And they say, ah, that's bad, isn't it, said the second mouse. It would have been better if we had all died before this began. And it is this sense of impending doom that hangs over them that puts despair in lots of people's hearts. And yet, that is not what the story is about. It's not about despair. And the gospel is the same way. So listen, uh, this is from a, a wrathful judgment upon this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken as captives to all the Gentiles. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. And on earth, nations will be in dismay, perplexed by the roaring of the sea and the waves, People will die of fright in anticipation of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And in the Narnian world, we see that the powers are being shaken. Everything that they've depended on is now being called into question, and things that they counted on are being destroyed. And if you were in church at the early service, which I hope you weren't, because I hope that you went to lessons and carols, because it was glorious. But if you'd been at the early service, you would have heard this gospel text from Mark 13. Jesus said to his disciples, be watchful, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It is like a man traveling abroad. He leaves home and places his servants in charge, each with his own work and orders the gatekeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore, you do not know when the Lord of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or in the morning. May he not come suddenly and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, watch. That was actually two weeks ago. Uh, but it's the same idea that you need to be watching. And in Narnia, remember, they're always watching for when Aslan is going to return. They know that when Aslan comes back, evil will be dealt with, 
righteousness and truth and justice will prevail. But when you read the story, you see that there are examples, and we've talked about a number of these, of preparation, of being alert, and being watchful that show up all through the story. Remember when Tyrion took them to the tower, and the tower was already equipped, and they had been oiling the arrows and all of that to make sure everything was in readiness. They're proactively being ready. And then they're trying to figure out what to do with this message that's coming from what is supposed to be Aslan that seems so opposite, and they're not sure what that means. And so uh, there's this little excerpt. He is not a tame lion, said Tyrion. How should we know what he would do? We who are murderers, Jewel, I will go back. I will give up my sword and put my hands in the hands of those Calermines and ask they bring me before Aslan. Let him do justice to me. You will go to your death then, said Jewel. Do you think I care if Aslan dooms me to death, said the king? That would be nothing, nothing at all. Would it not be better to be dead than to have this horrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed in and longed for? It is as if the sun rose one day and were a black sun. I know, said Jewel, or as if you drank water and it were dry water. You are in the right, sire. This is the end of all things. Let us go and give ourselves up. There's no need for both of us to go. If we ever loved one another, let me go with you now, said the unicorn. If you are dead and Aslan is not Aslan, what life is left for me? They turned and walked back together, shedding bitter tears. And one of the things that is so poignant about this is that part of the loss of hope that we see in our culture today is because of lies about who God is, lies about who Jesus is, lies about what the church stands for, where what was thought to be something good and beautiful has been portrayed so often as something dark and evil that people who are not deeply involved have begun to believe some of those myths, which has resulted in this same type of despair. And as they go on, um, even when Aslan, uh, the fake Aslan is exposed as an imposter, it exposes an even worse situation that they don't even know what they can do to combat it, but they bond together in this deep fellowship of ministry of presence. And we talked about before, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, that Lewis uses that image over and over again of Jewel is with Tyrion, and Tyrion is with Jewel, that they are not facing this alone, and that as we walk through Advent, we're continually reminded that Emmanuel means God with us. And so Lewis is getting at all of that. And one of the things that happens is that, and we talked about this just recently, that when Puzzle comes out and they've got Puzzle and they've got the fake lion skin, they expect everybody to say, oh, we've been fooled, we won't be fooled again, like the Who said, we won't be fooled again, and then everyone would rally to Tyrion. But in fact, that's not what happens because the whole concept of truth has been so devalued that everybody and the dwarfs and some of the other creatures, they think everybody lies. So why should I believe these people 
over anyone else. And we see that happening in our culture today, this whole idea of you have your truth and I have my truth, rather than the fact that the truth with a capital T is something that is absolute and objective and unchangeable. So part of what uh, the article says is that even though we are preparing for or maybe even experiencing the end times, it does not need to be gloomy or fearful or full of anxiety. Christ brings us comfort and strength to endure. We just heard a homily about this in church. Christ brings us comfort and strength to endure, just like King Tyrion. And Tyrion says, or rather Lewis writes about Tyrion in this way, and still there was no change in the night or the wood, but there began to be a kind of change inside Tyrion. Without knowing why, he began to feel a faint hope, and he felt somehow stronger. And one of the messages of Advent is that even in these prophecies of doom and the end of the world, there's a strong ray of light and of hope that God is sending his son to save his people, and that that is the hope to which we cling in the midst of a world that is falling apart. And as the story moves on, we haven't gotten to the, the actual last battle that is going to show up in a couple of chapters, but Aslan does come back and Narnia comes to an end. But the interesting thing is that you see, even though Narnia is fictional, uh, that you can see similarities to the way that the scriptures describe the end times and the end of the world and the new heavens and the new earth. And so this author says that she feels that the last battle is one of the greatest things you could ever read for Advent because it focuses you on why this being watchful and being prepared and holding on to hope that all those things together are what Advent is all about. And that we're not just preparing for an event that's already happened, but that we are looking forward to that event when Jesus comes back. And I love that Charles Wesley hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, that was written way back in 1744. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. And that word rest, there's a great devotional that my friend Betsy Cahill does for Advent. If you don't get that, um, please go to betsycahill.com. It's C-A-H-I-L-L.com. And she has a scripture reading and a meditation and a work of art and something musical for each day of Advent. But she was talking in the meditation for today about the word that is usually used for rest. And what a profound word that is. And that we, in our culture, we think rest just means stop. That, that we've stopped and so now we're resting. But that, that is not at all the biblical idea. The, the biblical idea is tied up in that whole idea of God resting on the seventh day. And that it is a deep and rich and fruitful kind of rest. And that's the rest that Christ comes to bring us. So, 
Jumping quickly uh, back multiple centuries, imagine yourself, back 318 AD, Athanasius. And Athanasius is one of the great church fathers, one of the great saints of the church. And to my everlasting joy, my ordination to the priesthood was able to be arranged on the feast day of St. Athanasius. So I feel very connected to him. Uh, but Lewis wrote a fantastic preface to a new translation of Athanasius in 1944. And you might remember 1944, World War II is still happening all over everywhere in Europe. But Lewis is doing all these things. He wrote that Christmas sermon for pagans in 1944 also. Uh, but he felt that Athanasius was someone that the church had lost touch with. And part of the reason he wanted to write this preface is that he was popular in 1944. And he thought, since he was writing the preface and the book was short, maybe people might actually buy it and read it. But the preface is just absolutely brilliant. And I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but I just want to read this first part of it. And then we're going to read a little bit of Athanasius. Uh, this, if you're still looking for things for your cocktail party conversation, if you didn't clear the room before, if you want to bring out some quotes from the fourth century, that will do it. So Lewis says this, his epitaph is Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. We are proud that our own country, that is England, has more than once stood against the world. Athanasius did the same. He stood for the Trinitarian doctrine, whole and undefiled, when it looked as if all the civilized world was slipping back from Christianity into the religion of Arius, into one of those sensible synthetic religions which are so strongly recommended today, and which then as now included among their devotees many highly cultivated clergymen. Ouch. Uh, and part of what Lewis is saying, Arius is the one who was saying that Jesus was not co-eternal with God, that he was a created being. So it's more complicated than that, but that will be enough for right now. Uh, you will remember if you were in the great divorce class that Lewis is good about holding the feet of clergymen and even bishops to the fire. And he had one of the Church of England bishops in hell in the great divorce, which was pretty bold for the 1940s. So Lewis writes this, when I first opened up Athanasius's De Incarnatione, I soon discovered by a very simple test that I was reading a masterpiece. Now his idea of a simple test is pretty hilarious, uh, you will see. I knew very little Christian Greek except that of the New Testament, that's all. And I had expected difficulties. To my astonishment, I found it almost as easy as Xenophon. I mean, we're all reading Xenophon, right? Right? And only a mastermind could in the fourth century have written so deeply on such a subject with such classical simplicity. Every page I read confirmed this impression. His approach to the miracles is badly needed today for it is the final answer to those who object to them as arbitrary and meaningless violations of the laws of nature. And just to pause, part of Lewis's theology was a robust biblical understanding 
of miracles, that miracles are real, and that God intervenes into his world when he wants to, to do miraculous things. And one of the really terrible things in a lot of theology that gets thrown around today is people have either completely discounted the possibility of miracles or explained them away. But Lewis holds to a robust supernaturalism that is part and parcel of what is in the Gospels. So Lewis says, these miracles are here shown to be rather the retelling in capital letters of the same message which nature writes in her crabbed cursive hand, the very operations one would expect of him who was so full of life that when he wished to die, he had to borrow death from others. The whole book indeed is a picture of the tree of life, a sappy and golden book, full of buoyancy and confidence. I admit appropriate all its confidence today. We cannot point to the high virtue of Christian living in the gay, almost mocking courage of Christian martyrdom as a proof of our doctrines with quite that assurance which Athanasius takes as a matter of course. But whoever may be to blame for that, it is not Athanasius. So the preface goes on, but he's trying to get us to go back to this book and read what he says because it will fire us up about the wonder of our faith and what God did in sending Jesus. So I'm going to do something really risky. I'm going to read you out loud two whole slides worth of words from the fourth century. So if you're on the beach and this is your cue to lie on the floor and snooze, that is fine. But I will tell you, this stuff is so good. So this is just a little excerpt. For this purpose, then, the incorporeal and incorruptible and immaterial word of God entered our world. In one sense, indeed, he was not far from it before, for no part of creation had ever been without him who, while ever abiding in union with the Father, yet fills all things that are. But now he entered the world in a new way, stooping to our level in his love and self-revealing to us. He saw the reasonable race, the race of men, that like himself expressed the Father's mind, wasting out of existence, and death reigning over all in corruption. He saw that corruption held us all the closer because it was the penalty for the transgression. He saw, too, how unthinkable it would be for the law to be repealed before it was fulfilled. He saw how unseemly it was that the very things of which he himself was the artificer, that is, the author, the very things of which he himself was the author should be disappearing. He saw how the surpassing wickedness of men was mounting up against them. He saw also their universal liability to death. All this he saw, and pitying our race, moved with compassion for our limitation, unable to endure that death should have the mastery, rather than that his creatures should perish and the work of his father for us men come to naught, he took to himself a body, a human body, 
even as our own. Nor did he will merely to become embodied or merely to appear. Had that been so, he could have revealed his divine majesty in some other and better way. No, he took our body. And not only so, but he took it directly from a spotless, stainless virgin without the agency of human father, a pure body, untainted by intercourse with man. He, the mighty one, the author of all, himself prepared this body in the virgin as a temple for himself and took it for his very own as the instrument through which he was known and in which he dwelt. Thus, taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he surrendered his body to death instead of all and offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love for us, so that in his death all might die and the law of death thereby be abolished, because having fulfilled in his body that for which it was appointed, it was thereafter voided of its power for men. This he did that he might turn again to end corruption, men who had turned back to corruption and make them alive through death by the appropriation of his body and by the grace of his resurrection. Thus he would make death to disappear from them as utterly as straw from fire. Now that's a lot to take in, but it is strong. If you start thinking it's no big deal that Jesus became a man, spend some time with that passage. And then it just gets even better. And we're gonna come back around to Mumford and Son in the middle of this. The Savior is working mightily among men every day. He is invisibly persuading numbers of people all over the world, both within and beyond the Greek-speaking world, to accept his faith and be obedient to his teaching. Can anyone, in face of this, still doubt that he has risen and lives, or rather that he is himself the life? Does a dead man prick the consciences of men so that they throw all the traditions of their fathers to the winds and bow down before the teaching of Christ? If he is no longer active in the world, as he must needs be if he's dead, how is it that he makes the living to cease from their activities, the adulterer from his adultery, the murderer from murdering, the unjust from avarice, while the profane and godless man becomes religious? If he did not rise but is still dead, how is it that he routes, the prof that he routes and persecutes and overthrows the false gods whom unbelievers think to be alive, and the evil spirits whom they worship. For where Christ is named, idolatry is destroyed, and the fraud of evil spirits is exposed. Indeed, no such spirit can endure that name, but takes to flight on sound of it. This is the work of one who lives, not of one dead. And more than that, it is the work of God. For of what use is existence to the creature if it cannot know its maker? It was our sorry case that caused the word to come down. 
our transgression that called out his love for us so that he made haste to help us and to appear among us. It is we who were the cause of his taking human form and for our salvation that in his great love he was both born and manifested in a human body. How could he have called us if he had not been crucified? For it is only on the cross that a man dies with arms outstretched. He deals with men as a good teacher with his pupils, coming down to their level and using simple means. St. Paul says as much, because in the wisdom of God, the world and its wisdom knew not God, God thought fit through the simplicity of the news proclaimed to save those who believe. Men had turned from the contemplation of God above and were looking for him in the opposite direction, down among created things and things of sense. The savior of us all, the word of God and his great love took to himself a body and moved as man among men, meeting their senses, so to speak, halfway. This is just really strong stuff. So when it comes in your email, when you're thinking next week, oh, we don't have class, go back and read this. Because if you can get your head even a little bit around this, it makes the wonder of the incarnation just explode in your head. And this whole idea, what for of what use is existence to the creature if it cannot know its maker? And is there anything that is more descriptive of the disease of our age? And that really is the whole big question of the Barbie movie that we talked about in Theology on Tap. It is a movie that I would encourage y'all to see. It's not just a stupid, cute, pink movie. Um, it really poses about what are we here for? What's the difference between men and women? What are we here for? What are we made for? And that is the question. And the answer is that we were made to know our maker. But the problem is, just as in this last part of this section, that our culture is looking in the wrong direction. It's like that old song, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in all the wrong faces. Um, we're looking among created things. We're looking among things that our senses perceive. We're looking down rather than looking up. Fourth century, good job. And now we are going to make a switch to Lewis's Christmas sermon for pagans. And if you've read much Lewis, you know that Lewis actually is a little bit obsessive, shall we say, about definitions of words. And I think he gets that somewhat from Tolkien. Tolkien was a philologist, which basically means someone who studies words, Oxford English Dictionary on the letter W. And so he was researching all of the words that begin with W. And there are a lot of words that begin with W. And so he was very attuned to the little gradations of meaning among these words. And so Lewis, in the same way, 
really wants to hold to the full definition of words, and he is going to unpack that uh, in this sermon. And so this excerpt uh, is very interesting because it was discovered uh, in the Strand magazine that was published in 1944 by a woman doing research in a dusty archival corner of a library off the beaten track in Edinburgh, Scotland. And when she, can you imagine looking in this gray, ugly bound index with little tiny print and looking for C.S. Lewis and seeing his name and a volume and issue and page number and then going back into the stacks and pulling out the rack that had all of these issues bound together into a book and then turning to the page and then finding that handout that you have with the art and the color and this title, A Christmas Sermon for Pagans. I hope it was around Christmas when she found it because what a great Christmas present. But the interesting thing about this is that remember this is, um, it was written in 1944, I'm not sure that this date on here is actually correct, but part of what was interesting is the little way they describe Lewis. So they say, writing religion for skeptics has made C.S. Lewis a bestseller. His books on Christianity, chief among them the Screwtape Letters, sell better and read more easily than most crime stories. This sermon is a characteristic piece of writing by the Oxford Don who has become the most entertaining missionary of our time. Now, I can just imagine C.S. Lewis reading that and being horrified that that was what they wrote about him. But it probably did make people want to read it. Um, Lewis was horrified. The worst thing you could do in Oxford is to be a best-selling author. Because if you truly were brilliant, no one could understand what you were writing about except for other Oxford professors and maybe people from the other place, that is Cambridge. Um, certainly not the great unwashed of the British public. And then to say that it reads more easily than crime novels, I mean, that's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And the whole best-selling thing, and there's sort of a, an idea in here that he's making a lot of money that's sort of implied too. And of course, the ironic thing about that is that Lewis gave away all of the money that he made from his books. He put them all into a blind trust that was administered by a friend of his, and he gave away so much money that he didn't have enough money to pay the taxes on the sales of the books and had to borrow money to pay his taxes. But I'm gonna read this straight through and uh, then we'll talk just a little bit about it. And again, if you're on the beach and you wanna to go to sleep and dream of sugar plums, that's all good. When I was asked to write a Christmas sermon for pagans, I accepted the job lightheartedly enough. But now that I sit down to tackle it, I discover a difficulty. Are there any pagan that it is ceasing to be Christian? And is that at all the same thing? Let us remember what a pagan or heathen, I use the words interchangeably, really was. A heathen was a man who lived out on the heath, out in the wilds. 
A pagan was a man who lived in a pagus or small village. Both words, in fact, meant a rustic or yokel. They date from the time when the larger towns of the Roman Empire were already Christianized, but the old nations is to suggest that a post-Christian man is the same as a pre-Christian man. But that is like thinking that a woman who has lost her husband is the same sort of person as an unmarried girl, or that a street where the houses have been knocked down is the same as a field where no house has yet been built. The ruined street and the unbuilt field are alike in one respect, namely that neither will keep you dry if it rains, but they are different in every other respect. Rubble, dust, broken bottles, old bedsteads, and stray cats are very different from grass, thyme, clover, buttercups, and the lark singing overhead. The real pagan differed from the post-Christian in the following ways. Firstly, he was religious. From the Christian point of view, indeed, he was too religious by half. He was full of reverence. For him, the earth was holy. The woods and waters were alive. His agriculture was a ritual as well as a technique. And secondly, he believed in what we now call an objective right and wrong. That is, he thought the distinction between pious and impious acts was something that existed independently of human opinions, something like the multiplication table, which man had not invented but had found to be true and which he had better take notice of. The gods would punish him if he did not. And just to pause for a minute, part of what Lewis is getting at here is that having fallen away from religion after having been exposed to it is very, very different from this pagan state of worshiping nature, that it's very, very different. And Lewis is gonna tell us that there's some pretty good things about being pagan as opposed to post-Christian. To be sure, by Christian standards, the pagan's list of right and wrong was rather a muddled one. He thought, and the Christians agreed, that the gods would punish him for setting the dogs on a beggar who came to his door or for striking his father. But they all, he also thought they would punish him for turning his face to the wrong point of the compass when he began plowing. Though his code included some fantastic sins and duties, it got in most of the real ones. This leads us to the third great difference between a pagan and a post-Christian man. Believing in a real right and wrong means finding out that you are not very good. The pagan code may have been on some points a low one, but it was too high for the pagan to live up to. Hence, a pagan, though in many ways merrier than a modern, had a deep sadness. When he asked himself what was wrong with the world, he did not immediately reply, the social system, or our allies, or education, or the government, or politics. It occurred to him that he himself might be one of the things that was wrong with the world. He knew he had sinned. And the terrible thing was he thought the gods made no difference between voluntary and involuntary sins. You might get into their bad books by mere accident. And once in, it was very hard to get out of them. The pagan dealt with this situation in rather a silly way. His religion was a mass of ceremonies, sacrifices, purifications, etc., 
which were supposed to take away guilt, but they never quite succeeded. His conscience was not at ease. Now, the post-Christian view, which is gradually coming into existence, it's already complete in some people, still incomplete in others, is quite different. According to it, nature is not a living thing to be reverenced. And that is exactly where we are. It is not a living thing to be reverenced. It is a kind of machine for us to exploit. There is no objective right or wrong. Each race or class can invent its own code or ideology just as it pleases. And whatever may be amiss with the world, it is certainly not we, the ordinary people. It is up to God if, after all, he should happen to exist, or to government, or to education, to give us what we view is the correct one, then we have indeed woken from a nightmare. The old fear, the old reverence, the old restraints, how delightful to have woken up into freedom, to be responsible to no one, to be utterly and absolutely our own masters. We have, of course, lost some fun, a universe of colorless electrons, which is presently going to run down and annihilate all organic life everywhere and forever, is perhaps a little dreary compared with the earth mother and the sky father, the wood nymphs and water nymphs, chaste Diana riding the night sky, and homely Vesta flickering on the hearth. But one can't have everything, and there are always the flicks and the radio. If the new view is correct, it has very solid advantages. But is it correct? And if so, why are things not going better? What do you make of the present threat of world famine? We know now it's not entirely due to the war. From there was big famine during World War II, huge problems with food supplies. From country after country comes the same story of failing harvest. Even the whales have less oil. Can it be that nature, or something behind nature, is not simply a machine that we can do what we like with, that she's hitting back? Wave the point. Suppose she's only a machine and we are free to master her at our pleasure. Have you not begun to see that man's conquest of nature is really man's conquest of man? That every power wrested from nature is used by some men over other men. Men are the victims, not the conquerors in this struggle. Each new victory over nature yields new means of propaganda to enslave men, new weapons to kill men, new power for the state, and new weakness for the citizen, new contraceptives to keep man from being born at all. As for ideologies, does no one see the catch? If there's no real right and wrong, nothing good or bad in itself, None of these ideologies can be better or worse than another. For a better moral code can only mean one which comes nearer to some real or absolute code. One map of New York can be better than another only if there is a real New York for it to be truer too. If there is no objective standard, then our choice between one ideology and another becomes a matter of arbitrary taste. Our battle for democratic ideals against Nazi ideals has been a waste of time because the one is no better than the other, nor can there ever be any real improvement or deterioration. 
If there's no real goal, we can't get any nearer to it or farther from it. In fact, there's no real reason for doing anything at all. And this is a lot of what Lewis was getting at in the abolition of man, that if there is no truth, if there's no revealed right and wrong, if there is none of that, and it's just a matter of everybody's opinion, your truth versus your truth versus your truth, then there is no way that you can say that a group that is doing horrible things like the Nazis, all you can say to that is, well, that's their truth. And just say it doesn't make any difference that that's going on in the world. So you can tell this, this, the way people think about these things really matters. So Lewis continues, it looks to me, neighbors, as though we shall have to set about becoming true pagans, if only as a preliminary to becoming Christians. I don't mean we should begin leaving, we should dance to Dionysus across Hampstead Heath, though perhaps a little more solemn or ecstatic gaiety and a little less commercialized amusement might make our holidays better than they are now. I don't even mean, though I do very much wish, that we should recover that sympathy with nature, that religious attitude toward the family, and that appetite for beauty which the better pagans had. Perhaps what I do mean is best put like this. If the modern post-Christian view is wrong, and every day I find it harder to think it is right, then there are three kinds of people in the world. Those who are sick and don't know it, the post-Christians, those who are sick and know it, the pagans, and those who have found the cure. Now that is really important. Those who are sick and don't know it. And that is the reason that we've talked about before, that instead of looking at this world and just thinking, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore because all those people out there are so bad, we should understand that they have been deceived and we should feel compassion for them and realize that they're sick and they don't even know it and pray that the Holy Spirit would break through with the truth. Those who are sick and know it, um, this is why Lewis said, give me a good pagan any day. People that have a sense of sin are people that those people, to them the gospel is good news. And then those who have found the cure those of us who know Jesus, we have found the cure. So if you are in the middle of a pandemic of sin, shall we say, and you have the cure but you don't share it, how awful is that? So Lewis continues, and if you start in the first class, you must go through the second to reach the third. For in a sense, all that Christianity adds to paganism is the cure. It confirms the old belief that in this universe, we are up against living power. Just what Athanasius said, dead men don't do these things. We are up against a living and real and personal God. We are up against living power. There is a real right and we have failed to obey it. That existence is beautiful and terrifying. It adds a wonder of which paganism had not distinctly heard, that the mighty one has come down to help us to remove our guilt, 
to reconcile us. All over the world, even in Japan, even in Russia, men and women will meet on December the 25th to do a very old fashioned and very pagan thing, to sing and feast because God has been born. And I love that because it reminds me of the letters um, that I would commend to you that Pliny the Younger was writing back to the emperor about what to do with the Christians. Um, And he said they would gather for these feasts and they would sing hymns as to a god, which for him were the, the pagan gods of the Roman Empire, but for the Christians were the real true god that Jesus was the embodiment of. You are uncertain whether it is more than a myth. Well, if it is only a myth, then our last hope is gone. But is the opposite explanation not worth trying? Who knows that, but that here and here alone lies your way back, not only to heaven, but to earth too, and to the great human family whose oldest hopes are confirmed by this story that does not die. Now remember, in the middle of World War II, there was such rampant atheism, such rampant belief that the world was going to end, that that's why the BBC commissioned C.S. Lewis to do, do the broadcast talks that became the book Mere Christianity, that people were losing their faith, losing hope, And Lewis really deeply believed that the Christian faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was the only cure. And so that was why he would ride the train into Oxford during the Blitz to the BBC headquarters that was one of the targets of the Luftwaffe to go broadcast live during bombing raids sharing the gospel with people. I'm not going to say anything about how addicted to comfort we are and how we don't want to get out of our comfort zone. So with that, uh, hold on. With that, let's close by reading together this great Cranmer collect for Advent Sunday. But before we do that, I just want you to note how this first part that we did about how the last battle is such a great preparation for Advent And then the middle part about Athanasius reminding us what it meant that Jesus took on a body and became man to save us. And then Lewis's sermon to pagans, it just all hangs together in a way that is a beautiful preparation for this season. So let's say this prayer together. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost now and ever. Amen. Continuing in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this great book, The Last Battle. We thank you for all the times that we have shared together this fall, moving toward this night in the season of Advent where we look 
at the darkness of the world, but we see the ray of hope that is there because of you and because of Jesus and his incarnation. Lord, we pray that as we walk through the rest of Advent, that you would help us to watch and to be prepared and to be ready to celebrate even more than a pagan would the joy and merriment and wonder of your love revealed to us in Jesus' birth at Christmas. We pray your blessing on us as we go this night, and we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Please meet somebody you don't know before you go home.